And uh, I promise you that the messages will be expository messages. Okay, when we, when we come to different points in the subject, if I go through with this, and I want you to pray that God will give me 100% clarity between now and next Sunday. But if I go through with following this, this theme for a little while, um, I, all the messages will be expository messages. All right, uh, I'll pick a chapter and we'll go preach that subject for that week, that day, through a chapter of Scripture. So it's not going to be topical preaching. I'll give you plenty of Bible. But it's a subject that, uh, that I think is really helpful to us. And this morning I'm going to preach this message, which if this turns into the series that I think it is, I do have a book kind of on my heart that I might just pick and start going through. Uh, I'm not sure how long, if I go with this series, I'm not sure how long I'll be preaching it, how long it'll take. Could be a couple weeks, could be six months, could be a year, really. That's how kind of in-depth I think the subject is. But, uh, but either way, I do want you to pray, and your messages will be expository. Um, I'll be continuing through books of the Bible and the other services, and I'll probably get done with this subject and get right back into going through uh, the book of the Bible that I got on my heart next. I like that style. But I always want to be sensitive to God. I don't want to get so stuck in the way I do things that God can't say, hey, there's a subject that the church needs to study from the Bible and, and be able to follow that, all right? So again, I commit to expository messages. I'm going to give you Bible every time I preach. But uh, I'm pretty sure that I'm, I'm going to be starting on a little bit of a different theme. So with that being said, turn to 2 Corinthians 10. Let's stand and we'll read uh, the passage for this morning. And I want to preach to you on a pretty interesting subject here. And, and what, what the title of it would be is this, or the thought would be, is the dichotomy of the Christian life. Uh, that's not the thought of the entire series. That's the thought of this morning. Uh, the dichotomy of the Christian life. Dichotomy is a division into parts. It's a contrast between two things that are represented as being opposed or entirely different. Uh, dichotomy is a system of branching in which the axis forks repeatedly into two different branches. And that, to tell you the truth, man, the Christian life is so much that way that it honestly gets confusing sometimes. And as a result of the unexpected, the, the two seemingly opposing things that sometimes, I've told you this before, a Bible-believing preacher can preach and hear one thing come out of his mouth or he's so strong on this particular viewpoint that he'll say something else and you're like, that's kind of in contrast to what you say. That doesn't even, that's not what you usually say. That's not how you usually think. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Have you ever been almost like confused like, what the heck was that? Why did he just do that? Why did he just say that? That's not how he sees it. And that is the Christian life. It can be so diametrically opposed at the same time, but it's not. And I think confusion comes in and the devil comes in and problems come in in our Christian life because we fail to rightly divide or to understand the dichotomy of the Christian life. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10.1, I did say 2 Corinthians, right? Yeah. Now I, Paul, beseech myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence and base among you, but being absent and bold towards you. Do you see it already? He's talking about meekness and gentleness of Christ. And then he says, in presence I'm base among you, but I'm absent, I'm bold towards you. So what are you, Paul? Are you base or are you bold? Why is Paul so gentle when he writes, so, so aggressive when he writes, but when he shows up, he's so gentle? What is Paul? Is Paul aggressive or is Paul gentle? Yeah. 
Verse 2. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some. Why is Paul sometimes so rough and other times he's not? Which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Are we in the flesh or not? For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning. I pray, God, that as we get into this message today, that you'd make it clear, God, what we're trying to say here and give us some help in trying to live our Christian life. Help us to be able to recognize the problems, the issues, the struggles, the trip-ups. Help us to be able to make sense, God, of what it means to serve you and what it means to have a local church and what it means to, to try to do right and how to get these things done, God. We get confused, but we know that you're not the author of confusion, And your Bible lays it all out, God. You always create the balance, and it's amazing. Help us not to be imbalanced. I pray you'd teach us this morning and help us. Help me to preach, teach, whatever you'd have me to do in such a way that will be a help and a blessing and a benefit to this local church and help your people. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I got thinking about this, and... And here's sort of where the thought's been coming from in my mind. We have a lot of uh, new people that have come. I just went and asked Jim, and he said, I can look it up for sure. I said, just a ballpark, a guesstimation. He said, probably 25. The question I asked him is, how many have joined the church in the last, you know, recent past? About 25. I said, that was exactly what I was thinking was about 25. On my prayer list at home, There's at least 30, but probably more like 40 people that regularly come, you know, regularly at least a couple times a month, regular faces, that haven't joined the church yet. And I got got thinking about that because, man, it's a blessing to see people coming to church. It's a blessing to have people joining the church. It's a blessing to watch new Christians come in and really start catching on. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, whether you've been saved for years or not, We don't all, just because we got saved, you know, I would say 20 years. That doesn't mean you caught on 20 years ago, okay? Have you ever had it just start catching on? And I mean, really, actually starting to get somewhere. Man, this thing is real, and I'm growing, and I'm happy, and I'm learning my Bible, and I feel like, I feel like my life is changing. I feel like things are making more sense to me than they've ever made before. I feel more committed than I've ever felt. I actually feel like I'm growing. I feel like God is using me. It's a great and exciting thing for me to see as a pastor. I absolutely love it. Nothing keeps me going more than to see fruit coming in the lives of other people. Because that's what I'm supposed to be doing, right? You know what I can't stand seeing? I mean, literally, it rips my guts out. I can't stand watching people that come and kind of catch on, get tripped up, and wind up out. When people first come to church, you've heard me say this a thousand times, and I'm not preaching it at you right now, okay? I'm talking about, I'm looking at an obvious fact and just something that happens. It's human nature, it's not an accusation, and I don't want anybody who's newer joining or has been coming and thinking about joining, I don't want anybody thinking like, I'm looking at you this way, okay? 
I'm talking about human nature right now. I'm talking about history. I'm talking about what happens to all of us sooner or later. People come in the door and they're like, oh, this is it. This is great. This is so much better than where I was. I really love it here. You know what bothers me? Is the dichotomy of that very statement. Knowing that sooner or later, that place that you love so much right now, eventually you are going to have an issue. Eventually, it's not anywhere near as exciting as it was at first. The reality is you can come in and say, this is where God wants me and I'm never leaving and I love it here and I'm not going to quit and I'm going to stay faithful to God. I'm going to keep reading my Bible. I'm a Bible believer. I love old-fashioned preaching. I'm never backing off. But sooner or later, I've watched it happen. You're going to have to make a decision and the devil is going to show up at that time and put the pressure on you to try to get you out and away from God, to get you disinterested in that Bible you love so much, to get you yawning during the song service, to get you aggravated toward the church and aggravated toward the preacher and aggravated to it, it will happen to you sooner or later. And that's frustrating for me to watch. I don't like seeing people get confused. I don't like seeing people get tripped up. But it is a reality in the Christian life that you will not escape. How about this one? Here's a great dichotomy for you. You love your wife, don't you, gentlemen? Oh, man, you guys should have done so much better than that. (laughs) I'll give you another chance. You love your wives, don't you, gentlemen? (laughs) Okay, okay. You got points for sure. I don't know if it's just because you were closer or what, but. Is there anybody on the planet that can make you more angry than her? Be honest. Don't. No, you're not. You chickens, man. I mean, it's something else. You just got a bunch of points. You know, you put some in the deposit into the account. You can make a small withdrawal. It'll be okay. The reality is the person you love the most can aggravate you the most, right? Yeah. Ain't that a weird thing? Don't you love your family? Yes, Have you watched people get divorced? Yes, sir. Some of you have been divorced. You ever notice that even though they hate that person so much, they don't want to live, live with them anymore and they finally get what they wanted, which was a divorce? Do you ever watch the fallout of the divorce? You wanted this. Why are you so miserable? It's a weird dichotomy. It makes no sense at all. It's like, well, yes, I wanted this, but I didn't want all the fallout that was... Co- you understand what I'm talking about? The confusion in life. It can get so messy, folks, that it just is literally gets so pretzeled up that you can't even unwrap the thing and figure it out anymore. The Bible says God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Now, in the text that we read, God says what? The weapons of our what? You're in a battle. Every last one of you in this room this morning is in a battle. You're in a battle against three different things. You have the world that is absolutely 100% against you. If you have not noticed, the world is against your family. The world is against your kids. You're trying to raise your kids for God or you wouldn't be here this morning. And the world is against your kids, man. It's bad. It's never been as bad as it is right now. Kids, listen to me. The world wants to pull you away from where God has put you. 
Your safety and security is in that Christian home in which you live. It's in the local church that God has given to you, and the world wants to pull you away from it. The world is hounding our children, and as we try to raise our kids for God, according to the Bible, you are going to be more and more of a weirdo as time goes on, Mom and Dad. I mean, like, come on. Everybody has a cell phone by the time they're 12, 10, 8. Certainly by the time they're 14. Everybody, all my friends have a cell phone and none of them have to ask their parents who they are and aren't allowed to text. You are a weirdo. None of my friends' phone is blocked on the internet like parental guides. None of my friends have to deal with all that. And by the way, if you think I'm crazy right now, you lost your cotton-picking mind. We're just putting our little kids and just connecting them to the World Wide Web and like no restraints at all. You're a weirdo when you tell your kids, no, you're not allowed on the internet. No, we're careful about what we do and don't watch. The world is so much against us and against our church and against trying to raise our kids for Jesus Christ, against rules and regulations, that you are up against a major battle in my heart. You guys are not going to expect this to come out of my mouth. My heart goes out to you kids. Because it's got to be very, very difficult to have parents that say, no, you can't. And all your friends now, they're not just making fun of you like happened to us for being a Christian. They're not just making fun of you because you won't vape, you won't smoke, you won't drink, you won't do that stuff. They're making fun of you because you don't have a cell phone. Your parents don't give you unlimited access to the internet. You're a weirdo because you're not on social media. If your parents, even if, if Christian parents are even doing that anymore, I'm assuming that you, we don't even have to discuss that part. Correct. You're the weirdo. You're a weirdo that, you know, at 14, 15, 16, you don't need a, a, a boyfriend. You're not even within striking range of getting married. We don't do the whole boyfriend, girlfriend thing 24-7 because, look, I mean, honestly, we're a Christian home. What are you dating for? Why do you have a girlfriend, a boyfriend? I'm not saying you can't have a crush. That's normal and it's cool and we like each other. Cool. But no, you're not, you're not going out on a, on a date alone when you are years away from getting married. That's right. I'm sorry, we're getting, we're getting right. We're getting way into it now, aren't we? Now bring it. We got a lot of kids in this church, and I can't be derelict in my duties. You do what you want in your home. I'm preaching now, and we're at church. Amen. Like, keep yourself pure, stay right, and do right. All the way to the marriage altar. Amen? Amen. That makes you a weirdo. Even in church nowadays, that makes you a weirdo. But no, start tempting yourself at 14, 15, 16 years old. Does that make any sense? It doesn't make sense to me. But you know what, kids? It's hard for you. The devil's going to try to get in there and say, they're holding me back. And they're, trust me, girls. Trust me, boys. Your mama and daddy do not want you living in the basement at 40 years old, okay? I know your mom. I know your mom. She don't want you living in the basement when you're 40. You don't even have a basement. You don't even have a basement. That's it. Amen. Amen. She's got the thing set up right. She's squeezing you out early. Amen. <laughs> that was classic. <laughs> Right when I thought that kid could get no cuter, he pulled something like that, you know. 
We're not trying to hold you back. We're trying to set you up for life. Right. You understand that? It's tough when you got the world against you. And the world is so much stronger now than it's ever been before and creating so much more pressure on you. It ain't even funny. If you got a good mama and daddy, they are not going to care if they tick you off. I mean, look in my eyes. Do you think that I care that you're offended if I gave you the truth? Can't believe he'd preach against me. Like, I love you too much to care that you're offended. Not going to pull, and neither are your parents. They're not going to pull back. But you know what the devil wants? He wants to get in your head and show you the world, your enemy, and what they're doing. Your enemy. You got another enemy. It's the devil. And we'll get to some of that later if we keep going on this series. But he don't want you to keep going. So he'll use the world. You know what else he'll use? A third enemy? The flesh. Now here's the crazy part about that one, which we'll get to in a minute. You're stuck in it. God wants you to use it for his glory. That's a tough one. Is your flesh. You got all this stacked against you. And this war that you're in. And yet God's called us to what? We're in a fight, right? We're in a war? But God's called us to peace. (laughs) You understand what I'm talking about? The dichotomy of the Christian life? How is it that I have a mindset all the time of being a soldier? I'm not trying to turn everybody in the room into soldiers. I realize that's an instruction to a preacher. I'm not saying that we're all soldiers, but the typology is still there because you're told to put on the armor of God. You're told that you wrestle. That's to the Ephesian church. That's not to the Ephesian elders. That's not only to a pastor. So yes, there's another level expected of a preacher. I'm not putting that kind of pressure on everybody, but I am saying we're called to fight. We're called to wrestle. We are soldiers. We're in a war. It's not going to be easy. Raising kids for Jesus Christ is not going to be easy. It's getting harder as time goes on and keeping your marriage together is harder than it's ever been and it's not going to get easier. So you're in a war and you're soldiers and the war is around you all the time and you live in it because you're in flesh. That is always stuck in sin. (laughs) And then you're told to be at peace. I struggle with it. You know what happens in churches? We get in that war mindset because we believe what we believe pretty strong, don't we? Amen. Especially in a Bible-believing church, don't we get pretty, pretty, pretty dogmatic about our doctrine? Amen. Pretty Amen. tough about what we believe, pretty straight about it? Especially when you like hard preaching in a day and age where you don't get it anywhere you go. Amen. So we get so much in the war mindset that we forget who the enemies are and who they aren't. And if we don't understand how to rightly divide on a practical level, not doctrine, I'm talking on a practical level, if we can't learn to rightly divide, we start killing the wrong people. I've watched churches tear each other up because we so strongly believe what we believe that when we see somebody that doesn't do it exactly the way we do it or agree with every little nuance of how we see it or how we do it, that we automatically, we're always in that war mindset. We're always standing up for truth. We're always ready to fight. And now all of a sudden, we're messing up what God had put together. 
You know what I don't want to see with all the new folks that are coming and all that kind of thing? I don't want to see the time come where we actually start turning on each other because I've watched it happen over the years. I have watched the devil move into churches and take what once was a great church and just tear it up and 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 tear it up till it's gone. After the Lord tarries, sooner or later it's going to happen, but I hope he gives me a few more years and I just I don't want it happening on my watch. I'd like it to be that the elders that outlive Joshua continue on in the right way. I'd like to plant some real solid seeds and get some real good instruction from God and real good learning from the Word of God so that we can actually stay together and stay strong and have strong Christian homes and raise our kids as best we can for God and stay together as a church and love each other and grow and fight the battle together and not start hurting each other. But if you don't understand the dichotomy of the Christian life, you're going to wind up so messed up and twisted up in your head, you're not going to be able to figure out what's what. Look at our, t- our text for this morning. I want you to see, first of all, that war is expected of us. Look down at verse number 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Do ye look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trust to himself that he is Christ, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so are we Christ's. Notice he says in verse 4, the weapons of our warfare. So there's an assumption there by Paul immediately in the text. He doesn't even have to stop and explain to you that you're in a war. There's an assumption that you're in a war. And, and that war, that war's not going anywhere. But look what he says. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, here's the point. The weapons of your warfare are not physical. It's, it's not tangible. In other words, it's not the flesh. But wait a minute. <laughs> Preacher, you just said the flesh is one of the enemies. Yes, you're right. The flesh is one of the enemies. But the weapons of your warfare have nothing to do with the flesh. We understand the flesh is the enemy. We understand the world is the enemy, right? It's it's, it's against what we're trying to do. But when we don't understand the dichotomy of the Christian life, when we don't get what the Lord would have us to do, we doctrinally recognize the world is the enemy, but we practically don't recognize Jesus Christ. Hey, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. So now the weapons of our warfare, the world's the enemy, and we get so mad about everything we see in the world that we start... Turning on them instead of trying to reach them for Jesus Christ. Because we're not understanding the dichotomy of the Christian life. You raise your kids the right way. You point out to them how the world is not following the book. You point out to them the dangers of the world. You point out to them the destructiveness of all the stuff that they're planning in their heads. And that, listen, it's, it's, it's not a matter of whether or not you feel like a boy or a girl. You are what you are, honey, whether you like it or not. Surgeries do not change chromosomes. Do you understand that, genius? Right? 
and we, and we don't tiptoe around those subjects. We're not like afraid to address the issue. We're not tender and gentle with truth. When truth is truth, we teach our children the truth, but we've got to remember to show our kids too. That young person doesn't know any better. They don't know the Lord. They need a gospel track. They need a smile from a Christian. They need a Christian that'll stop and will care about them. Hey, once in a while, it wouldn't hurt you to drop them a $20 tip rather than just, I'm not tipping them because they're all trans around here. Have you ever met their mom and dad? That person at the store that represents everything you and I don't want our children to follow. That represents diametric opposition to who and what we are and what we believe. That bursts in us, that, that, that righteous indignation of, this is ridiculous where this nation is going. This makes me so angry. I don't want that influence on my children. And we're supposed to be teaching our children that. But have you ever stopped or set an example in front of your kids to consider? I wonder what that young girl, boy, I'm not using a pronoun. <laughs> I wonder what's happened in their life that's got them so confused and so messed up. I wonder maybe who's been abusing them from the time that they were, I wonder what kind of a creepy weirdo was living in their house. Right. But you're a Christian. You represent everything that goes against them, and they've already been taught in their mind without ever having an opportunity to experience it what you are because you're a Bible believing conservative Christian. You, do you see the dichotomy of the thing? You see the confusion in Christians' minds and hearts? We're in a war. We are soldiers. We are told that we are to fight this battle. But we fight it wrong. We stay in the war mindset and not realize that we're not fighting according to the flesh. Now here's the thing. We come into church. What do you expect in church? Save people, right? My brothers and sisters in Christ, right? When we come to church, we're expecting to see people that believe like we believe, that act like we act. And guess what you're still dealing with when you're in church? Flesh. Even save people that want to do right? You know why save people that want to do right mess up? Because they're flesh. We address the flesh issue and we say that's the enemy, but that's not really the enemy. You said it is the enemy. The flesh is what's getting that person to live like they shouldn't be living. But his flesh is not my enemy. My own flesh is my enemy. If his flesh messes him up, who's going to help him if I throw him away because his flesh messed him up? See that? Everybody else's flesh is not your enemy. Your flesh is your enemy. Well, that's the flesh, brother. Yeah? Is that your problem? Was that your flesh? Does God tell us to judge? And then God says not to judge your brother. You see what I'm talking about? The dichotomy of the Christian life? Yeah, we're supposed to judge. (laughs) But we're, we're not supposed to judge. It's 
It's not as simple as it looks, is it? But it's all outlined in Scripture. We'll get back to that. I'll give you that answer sooner or later. But you know what the problem Saul had? The mistake Saul made? Go to 1 Samuel chapter number 15, please. Keep your finger here in 2 Corinthians. We're coming back. 1 Samuel chapter number 15. Look at verse number 8. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Do you know what Amalek's a type of in the Bible? You're right. Amalek represents the flesh, and God said, I'll have war with Amalek from generation to generation. We're talking about we're in a war, right? You know what God has a war with? The flesh. God put the Spirit of God in you, and you're still in the flesh. God says, I'll have war with Amalek from generation to generation, right? So here's Saul, and he's having this war with Amalek. Saul smote the Amalekites, verse 7, from Havilah until thou comest to Shur, which is over against Egypt. That's the world. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good. You see it? And would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse they utterly destroyed. You know what this sounds to me like? This sounds to me like a good Bible-believing, King James, old-fashioned preaching, hymn-sinking congregation of people that love Jesus Christ and have sound doctrine. Hey, the fornication's done. God saved me. The alcohol's done. I'm a different man. The cigarettes are done. I'm not doing that anymore. Hey, I'm not even going to listen to that kind of music anymore. I'm going to be in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. I'm raising my kids for Jesus Christ. I'm taking some gospel tracts. I'm going to witness. I am doing all those things that I used to do that are wrong. Those are all gone, and I'm doing everything like I'm supposed to do it because I'm a good Christian, and I'm clean cut, and I got it together, and I know my Bible, and I've been serving the Lord a long time now, and I tithe, and I'm faithful, and I got it together. And the problem with all that is I, 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 I. You think you've arrived because you've cleaned up on the outside. If we keep going with this study, it's not going to be about all that stuff. Because the outside stuff is not the stuff that tears a church up. The outside stuff is really not the stuff that busts up a marriage. Ladies, I asked the guys questions earlier. Here's your chance for points. You know he's a knucklehead, right? Now you could really, they already know, there's nothing they're going to do about it. They have to eat, okay? Nothing they're going to, you got more power than you realize you have, ladies. He's a knucklehead, isn't he? Aren't men impossible sometimes? I understand, honey. No, you don't. Does he love you? If his heart is right with you, are you able to look over the fact that he's a little bit of a knucklehead? See, so the outside's really not all the perfection. That's really not it. How many of you ladies have ever seen one of these perfect guys that's Mr. Awesome? And of course, since he's Mr. Awesome, what, what's, that do, what's that do for you? 
He loves himself so much I'm not interested, right? Do you, you get the point that I'm making? See, we get so focused on the outside, the enemy, the flesh, that we forget the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. And just because you put your flesh together and quit doing wrong doesn't mean you're right. right. Here's Saul. He kept the good part. He kept the part that, that's good. He got rid of all that's refuse. He got rid of all that's wrong. But that wasn't enough because that's not what God said. God was not impressed with the man's flesh. He's not impressed with perfecting the outside. He's not impressed with you getting rid of all the garbage, but keeping what you think is good about you. God's not impressed with flesh at all. God said, utterly destroy them. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repented me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he's turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel. And he cried unto the Lord all that night, all night. When Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to, Ram, to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He thinks he did right. Like a lot of Christians think they're doing right. They think they're right on the issue and they're supposed to fight and they got Bible for it and the Bible says and they're not doing what I think they should be doing and I got a verse on that. He thinks everything's okay. But what he doesn't know is that his life and his heart and where he's headed and his confusion and his understanding is so limited that he's about to tear apart the kingdom. I wonder how many Christians are about to tear apart their marriage and their home and without realizing it, they're tearing apart their children by getting in the car on the way home and talking about everything that they're right about. Your kids are just sitting back there going, yeah, those church people, yeah, they're wrong. Yeah, they're goofy. Yeah, they're dorks. Yeah, they're self-righteous. Yeah, they're this. Yeah, they're that. And you're tearing apart your own kingdom because you think you're right. Verse 14, Samuel said, And what meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. Interesting. And the rest we've utterly destroyed. You know what he said? We kept the good part to sacrifice to God. Here I am, Lord. I kept the best part of the flesh because you know my talents and you know my gifts and you know what I have to offer to the church and I'm here to, to, to just, I just want to do it for the Lord. Eh. Well, God gave me a gift. It's the dichotomy of the Christian life. I'm here to sacrifice to the Lord. Yeah, God's not impressed with your sacrifice because your flesh means nothing to God. Even though it's perfected, it doesn't mean anything. The flesh can't please God. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now that's weird, ain't it? Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, please. Saul's a great example of somebody that would not utterly eradicate the flesh. He failed to realize the weakness of the flesh. And, and so here he is like, I'm going to save the best. But, but that didn't please God. It's so weak that that meant nothing to God. His obedience to God is what mattered. Our weapons are not carnal, but mighty through God 
Look at that in verse number 4. To the pulling down of strongholds. So what we need is something really powerful because we're up against a strong enemy, the flesh. We're up against a permeating enemy, the world. We're up against a subtle enemy, the devil. So how in the world are we going to figure this thing out? How are we going to get the victory? How are we going to get our kids through? How are we going to keep our marriages strong? How are we going to find out what's wrong with us and what's right with us? Look at where the problem really is. All we see is the flesh. All we're looking at is what they're doing to their flesh and chopping themselves up. And now they're trying to get all their philosophy into the rest of us. And look what the real problem is. The real problem is not the flesh. The war is not on the outside. Look at verse Five, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You know where the real problem is? It's in the mind. So we need a mighty enemy, a, a mighty weapon because we have a mighty enemy in order to win this fight, it's got to get more spiritual. If you haven't noticed, we're overrun by the flesh. If you haven't noticed, we're overrun by the world. If you haven't noticed, we're overrun by the devil. We are done. We're toast. We're cooked. We're wiped out. We have no chance of fighting back anymore. The preachers have fought back all through the 70s and 80s and 90s and even into the early 2000s. I watched them fight back as much as they could with everything in them. They fought the culture. They preached at everything about the flesh they could see and stayed on it until they split churches staying on it. Until they ran people off because they weren't catching up to the standard fast enough. Hold that line. Hold that line. Hold that. Fellas, we got to hold that line and train churches to hold that line. And you see what came of them. Because you've got the wrong enemy. And you're fighting that enemy every day because you live in him. So it's a tough dichotomy. You know what the answer is? Because I don't think we're done and I don't think, I think we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. You know what I think you can do? I think you can build a strong marriage in this day and age. I believe with all my heart you can raise children for the Lord Jesus Christ that make the right choices in their own life eventually and God does something with them. I believe we can see God build a church. I really do. But not the way we've been going. We better figure out what this war is and how to fight it. And you can't fight it carnally. You have to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the what? Do you see what that verse says? You know what God wants you to do? He wants your mind on Jesus Christ and He wants you to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, the flesh isn't going to do it You've got to fill yourself up with the Lord so much and the knowledge of God so much. You've got to keep filling yourself up until he fills. And as he fills the vessel, it pushes all the other stuff out. That's the only way to get it done. You know what we're supposed to be doing here this morning? Getting a good start on the week. 
My job is to pray up and find out, God, where you at and what you want from me and what am I supposed to give them and get your mind on the Lord and get your mind on Jesus Christ and give you some tools to help you get to work this week in putting the Lord first and seeking Jesus Christ and growing in Jesus Christ and doing battle against all that other stuff so that I can help you serve the Lord and win. You know, the Amalekites are people of the valley. You know what the flesh wants to do? Keep you in the valley. No victories, no joy, no winning. Boy, you're getting in that mindset too. The church, the church everywhere is just getting in that mindset. Just rolling over and playing dead. It is easier to let your kids go than it is to fight them. Right. Gentlemen, every once in a blue moon, you probably got to make a decision your wife might not want you to make because God tells you to do it. And it's easier not to fight. So you got a decision to make. How bad do you want to win? Not win a fight with your wife. Win for God. you got to cast down those imaginations. you got to make sure that, that the weapons that we're using are the right kind of weapons. So that we can serve Jesus Christ. So we can control our mind. Notice something else in verse number 15. He expects us not only to be fighting... But he expects us to walk in unity. Now how weird is that when we're called to be at war all the time? Verse 15, not boasting of things without our measure that is of other men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly. You notice there's a tight-knit relationship there between Paul and the church. He's saying, listen, we're not, I'm not trying to boast of other men's ministries. I'm not worried about other churches. I'm not worried about what the world's doing. My focus is you. My desire is you. I want to see you growing. I want to see you developing. I want to see your faith increasing. And when your faith increased, I'm enlarged and I'm encouraged. And my faith is increased. And we are operating together to grow in Jesus Christ and to help each other and to back each other and to serve the Lord together and to put up with each other and to be committed to each other to love one another and to be faithful as a tight-knit church to stay true to God. And that is exactly why the devil tries to drive you away from your local church. Because one of the weapons that you have in your arsenal is coming in here and hearing some Bible preached. Giving God a chance to deal with your heart. Giving God a chance to show you where you're wrong. Giving God a chance to convict you. And I mean, don't you have to do maintenance sometimes? Giving God a chance to say, hey, the marriage needs some maintenance. The kids need some maintenance. Your thought life needs some maintenance. Your Bible reading needs some maintenance. And we're going to get to some stuff here. I believe we're going to get to some stuff that we overlook all the time. Talking about spiritual stuff lurking down deep in your soul that you don't even know is there. That winds up causing problems, splitting churches, getting you out getting your marriage messed up, getting you and your kids, the relationship between parents and kids all muddied up and messed up. And life don't get easier, it gets tougher. But God tells us to walk in unity. Think about this, when you go to church, ain't it great to come here? You You know what I think is so nice about our church? I just feel like we're family. I look forward to seeing you on Sunday. My kids look forward to coming to church. And they're PKs. Don't even start using that term. I will call you down. I don't like it. They're not the pastor's kids. They're my kids. 
See, if they're pastor's kids, that means that if I resign the church, they got to stay with the new pastor. <laughs> P.W., the preacher's wife. No, she's my wife. If I leave, she goes with me, whether she wants to or not. Amen? Amen. And if she leaves, I'm going with her. Amen. But look, my family likes coming here. I know a lot of preachers that cannot say that. You know what it is? It's unity. You know what the devil doesn't want to sit back and watch? Unity. He uses all the things that you want to do for God. I want to sing. I want to play the piano. I want to teach. I want to this. I want to that. And he'll start working those angles in your mind and in your heart because you want to offer a sacrifice to God that maybe God put that gift in you, but right now he doesn't want it. I've watched it happen. We haven't had a youth group here, but I've watched other youth groups. We got one now and we're growing with it. But I've watched other youth groups. You know what the devil will do? Moms and dads, are you listening to me? We got a whole bunch more coming, so I'm preaching now. I'm preaching prophecy-wise. You get it? You know what happens, Mama? Somebody else's little brat offends your little baby. And so rather than being a grown-up, you get caught up in teenage, childish garbage. And the devil starts working on splitting the church because now you're eyeballing her mom. <laughs> Ladies are real good for that, you know. <laughs> what? I smiled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're not seeing the enemy. Even if their brat is wrong... Isn't that a golden opportunity for you to say, honey, drop it. Love them anyways. Maybe they're going through some things right now. So be patient. Why don't you pray for them? Because maybe they'll grow through it. You see how that stuff works? Unity. God expects us to be a tight-knit group. God expects us to love one another. Problem? The flesh. And you know what the flesh is? It's sold under sin. So people cause trouble. Now, now you're married, right? We've been using marriage a lot. A lot of you guys, not everybody's married, but a lot of you are married. Yes. You love them, right? Yes. Ain't there troubles from time to time? Yes, sir. Sometimes don't those troubles get pretty big? Sir. You ever been two or three days into a, just a bloody ongoing battle yes, of the wills and forgot... God bless you brother we'll talk later because you'll need it they just got married and forgotten where the whole thing even started you know what that is? do you know what that is do you know what that is it's just it's just the flesh your flesh is your enemy My flesh is my enemy, but her flesh is not my enemy. I don't have to eradicate her flesh. I have to eradicate mine. The same applies to your church. You're going to run into problems. The devil will begin to work that angle. And you have to decide you're going to die to yourself. To your offense. You're going to kill your enemy. And let it go. 
if you want God to get the victory in the long run. You know what's interesting about those kind of battles in marriage? I used to say this all the time, and I'm maturing and getting older and wiser, so I don't say it as much. But here we go. That was all sarcasm. You could have laughed. That got awkward. I used to say we like to fight because we like to make up. In, in all truthfulness, thanks, brother. He's been married longer than I've been alive, and he gave me a thumbs up, so that made me feel good. In all truthfulness, when you make it through the hard spots, it does deepen the relationship. Unity is what God expects. The problem is God commands unity and then God respects differences. Excuse me? God demands unity and God respects differences. Do you know what I've seen in churches? Because people don't understand the dichotomy of that setup. They expect that since we all go to the same church and we believe the same doctrine, and we do, right? And we're very strong on it. That that means there's no differences among us. So you know what I've seen in church? Especially as they get established and they grow and they literally get a culture. Churches get a culture. They expect then everybody that comes in that's new or everybody that's been here for a while is going to see everything the way the rest of us see it. And that is not how it works. Do you know it's Romans, I think, 16 or 14 over there that talks about some eat meat and some don't? And God accepts both. Some observe a holiday and some don't. And God accepts both. Because God's judging the motive as to why that person did or didn't do what they did or didn't do. Man looks on the outward appearance, whether or not they see everything, but God looks on the heart. Do you know why God picked Saul? Everybody says, oh look, Saul got picked because he's head and shoulders taller than everybody else, but that's not why God picked him. Because when God went to replace him, the first thing they did is they start with the oldest brother and they're going down through David's brothers and they're looking at all of them big and the mighty and they're like, that's not him, that's not him. And that's when God says, no, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart, go get that kid. The little ruddy skinny one. That's the one I got because of where his heart's at. So why did God pick Saul? Everybody focuses on the head and shoulders thing. But you know what God said when God busted him down, took his stripes away and said, you're done? When God went to demote him? God said, what is it not when thou wast little in thine own sight? God picked Saul because of Saul's heart. Everybody else saw the other. See, as Christians, we're looking at, the, we're looking at what they do. Can you believe what they do? Can you believe what they watch? Can you believe where they go? Did you see what they were wearing? Can you and we're just all obsessed with all that stuff. But what we can't see is that God looks at their heart. So while we're supposed to be unified and we're not compromised on our doctrine, we better learn to respect the differences that there may be between us and don't start a fight over those differences. Because that's not the war. You know, some guys just got a higher standard than others because of their past, their background, their history. You might have some liberties somebody else doesn't have and you think, oh, he's being ridiculous. Well, no, he ain't. You don't know where he comes from. So he might have to draw lines a little stricter and the Holy Ghost of God might expect him to draw lines a little stricter that he doesn't expect you to draw. Hey, none of your business. 
They might be more liberal than you. So what? They might let their kids do this, that, or the other, and you don't let yours. Not your problem. Leave it alone. Why? Because God demands unity. That's not unity at the expense of sin. That's unity and just differences. Notice the last point, and we'll go eat lunch. Wisdom is required if we're going to understand the dichotomy of the Christian life. Look at verse number 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. You know why you need wisdom? Because we all fail. Even you. Even David. You know what we do too much? We look at the outside. Been talking a lot about that this morning. We're noticing a lot the outside. We're comparing ourselves to the outside. And you know what? That's, God says that's, that's a stupid way to operate your life. Yeah. That is a lack of wisdom. You kids have no grounds to stand on when your parents say no and you say, yeah, but Pastor Reagan lets his kids. But, brother, but they do it this way. You have no grounds to stand on at all. Actually, you just proved, I'm not being mean to you. Ready? Are, are you ready? Brace yourself here. I'm not being mean. I, I don't have an angry heart towards you. You proved you're a little fool. Because God said you're not wise when you compare yourself and commend yourself based on other people. Maybe your parents are being too strict or they are wrong. Maybe God knows that and he's watching to see what kind of a spirit you're going to have and will reward, reward you or judge you based on your attitude towards your parents because everybody fails. There's not a perfect person in this room. There's not a perfect marriage in this room. There's not a perfect parent. There's not a perfect kid. Whoa, miss! God knows it. And that's the dichotomy of the Christian life because God says clean it up. And then you clean it up and God says, so what? (laughs) Here's a good one for you. Brother Lentz was phenomenal with these. That just messed my head up. Church is built around a man. You're giving a man way too much credit? And he just let it go. He He wasn't nice like me. He didn't try to explain it so that you'd understand what he meant. Built around a man. Takes 40 years to make a message because it takes God 40 years to build a man. Oh, that one drove me nuts. And I thought, how arrogant. You know what? I get it now. And I try to say it to other guys sometimes. They're like, yeah, that seems too, too much about you. A church is built around a man. But it's built on Jesus Christ. But if a man doesn't grow as he's pastoring a church, he can't expect his church to grow. Watch. Just hang on. But that doesn't mean the man did it. Well, if that confuses you, come back this afternoon. We'll really mess with your head. (laughs) There's not a preacher in his right mind that God has done something with and through and around that would ever say he did it ever in his way. He's lost his mind if he thinks he did it. He knows it was God. And yet God says, I expect something out of you. Ain't that interesting? You have to work your hind end off 
to have a decent marriage and to raise kids and to grow in the Lord and quit your sin and be mature and change and hold the church. You'll have to work your hind end off to do it. And then you didn't do it, God did. Ain't that a weird dichotomy? Okay, try it the other way. Sit back and don't do anything and expect God and then blame Him when you get to heaven and see if that works. You see, how, you see how confusing that gets? You see why some people want, man, God blesses and their children marry the right person and they're going good and they're doing great and you raise them well and you think you're all that? You missed it, man. You missed the whole thing. We all fail, so we need wisdom because our flesh messes us up. And because other people around us are going to fail, look at verse 10, for these letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. You know other people around you are going to fail? There's going to be people in the Corinthian church that get sideways to Paul and begin trying to cause a problem. And heaven forbid that be the one that you happen to get to be really good friends with. You see how it works? They permeated the church. And what they're doing is they're plants of the devil trying to split up the unity that God gave them. And they're criticizing Paul. Do you know you're going to see as you try to serve the Lord, you are going to watch other people around you that you love fail. Just stay faithful long enough. You first get married and you won't get into a three-dayer yet. But sooner or later, you get into a three-dayer. It's a, it's, it's a, you know why you need wisdom? You know why you need wisdom? You know, why, well, you know why you need wisdom? Because it's how you respond to people that fail you that is more important than whether or not people fail you. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. You can't stop the fact that people are going to fail you. But you can control your response when they do. And your response will determine what God does or doesn't do with you. You know, you can be right as the day is wrong and they'd mess it up and your response to them turns you from being the victim, the right one, to also being wrong. Because of the failures of others. So in conclusion, what should we do when we fail? Because we all do and we all will. Because the Christian life is not as easy as it looks like. I've probably made this as clear as mud this morning. That's not very clear. What do you do? Look at verse 6. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Do you know what one of the weapons of your war is? A A spiritual weapon of your warfare. It's a readiness to get right. When you've messed up, it's a great message if you haven't messed up yet. When you've messed up, being willing to fess up and stop. Revenge the disobedience. Yeah, I might have made a mistake, but I'm done with that and I'm getting back to God. I'm done with that I'm turning around and I'm not turning back. 
Yeah, I got tripped up. I got messed up. The flesh is there. The war is on. I, 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 really, I really messed up with the brother. I really messed up with my kids. I messed up with my wife. I, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get as right as I was wrong. I'm willing to say, honey, I'm sorry. I was an idiot. I was a knucklehead. Kids, I was off. I messed that up. That's actually good leadership. That doesn't undermine your leadership when you tell your kids, hey, I was off on that one. I'm sorry, and i got to straighten that thing up. Hey, be willing to revenge your mistake. Be willing to get right with God. Don't be so arrogant that you think you're always right and you can't get right when you need to get right. That's right. If you'd be willing to get right and to revenge what you did wrong, that is... The difference between people that make it and people that don't. It is not a matter of never failing. What it is, is it's a matter of dying to myself. The dichotomy of the Christian life, right? You're supposed to live unto God, right? You can't until you die. You cannot live for God until you die to yourself. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a what? What kind of a sacrifice? But you kill a sacrifice. <laughs> You're constantly messing with my head, Lord. <clears throat> yeah, it's a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. If you want to serve God, if you want to stay faithful, you have to die in order to live. That's the dichotomy of the Christian life. And as long as you're just stubbornly hanging on to your will, your offenses, your opinion, your view, your this, your that, your pride, you will never have the freedom to live for God and see God do something good with your life. Heads bowed and our eyes closed.